We're continuing our final events series, and today we're toppling the New World Order. I don't necessarily know a connection between Valentine's Day and the New World Order. I know 18 years ago when I married my Valentine, there was a New World Order in the right household. (laughs) I will say that. I better probably leave it right there. But I love Elizabeth very much, and her support means the world to me. And so hug your sweeties this weekend, do something special for one another, celebrate your love. Those are all wonderful and good things. So we've been looking in this uh, final events seminar that we've been going through, or, or sermon series, if you will, and we looked at the end time prophetic catalyst, and we talked about all these various things that are building up towards this National Sunday Law, and it's like dominoes, and how those final events, I believe, will be very rapid ones. You can go back and catch that one on our live stream if you have not heard that. We talked about the abomination of desolation and tried to break down that there's an initial application, the siege of Jerusalem. Then there's a union of church and state from 538 to 1798. But then there's also an end-time application of the National Sunday Law. And so if you didn't catch that one, you can go back and grab it. Last time, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the four stages of the Sunday Law. And so we tried to break that down a little bit, how in phase one... Sunday is enforced as a day of rest, and that's when we are called to do missionary labor. Now in phase two, you can honor Sabbath, but you must honor Sunday. It's mandated, and it's at that point that people start receiving the mark of the beast as they go along with forced worship, if you will. Phase three escalates where you can't worship on Sabbath, only on Sunday, and there's fines, imprisonment, and pose. You cannot buy or sell. And then in phase four, it finally ratchets up to the death decree. And so again, if that's one that you're interested in that you missed, you can go back and grab that one. And today, we're trying to tackle this topic of the New World Order. And we'll delve into that here just momentarily. We have a few other topics that we still want to cover. But that's where we are in this sermon series. And so for this final events, part four, I've entitled it, Is the New World Order Multiple Choice? Is the new world order multiple choice? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we delve into this topic, there are aspects of this that are very simple and some other aspects that are a little more complicated. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us and guide us in our study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question we want to ask is, what is the new world order? Have you heard those terms thrown around? Have you seen them in headlines? I've seen a few. This one says, New World Order Emerging Post-COVID. India can be a leader, according to India News. This is another one from the Connecticut Mirror. Data is the currency of a new world order. And that's trying to make the case for data and who knows what and so on. Here's another one from the New Yorker. It says, Biden faces more aggressive rivals and frame world order. So there we have it again, and the article speaks a lot about the threat of China and how it's on track to overtake the economy in just seven years, along with flexing greater military muscle and expertise in technology, and so that's the case that that article is making. So there's this idea that perhaps by the year 2030, the United States might succumb to China, and this would be the new world order. And really that's a fancy way of saying new pecking order. 
For those of you that maybe you're on the farm or what have you, you have several animals, maybe you have multiple dogs. There is a dog, if you put it all in one dish, that will eat first, right? We call it a pecking order, and then second, and then third, and sometimes there's some tussles, some, you know, back and forth until everybody figures out, especially if there's a new dog in the house, they have to figure out very quickly where they fit and where they line up. Well, the New World Order is this idea that at the top of the food chain, if you will, is the United States of America, but there's going to be a new world order, a new pecking order, a new chain of command, if you will, on the global scene. And so you have other articles talking about the most powerful countries in the world. And all of this is oftentimes very much surrounded with conspiracy theories as people wade into the weeds and make arguments and cases for it's going to be this because, or it's going to be this over there because, and these people are talking behind closed doors, and those people are talking behind closed doors, and so this is going to be the new order, no, this is going to be the new world order, and it just kind of turns into white noise. Here's another one, COVID and the new world order, and it has different ideas and things. COVID and the New World Order, building a new human-centered economy. Have you heard anything like that? Challenges us to rethink our economic system. Some are posing nobody should own anything, nobody should own any property, and this is coming, and so on. The Great Reset in Time, it says, COVID-19 pandemic has provided a unique opportunity to think about the kind of future we want. Time partner with the World Economic Forum, that's been the news a lot too, to ask leading thinkers to share ideas of how to transform the ways we live and work. I think most people just want to live and work and go back to normal, but anyway. Then you have this one, world leaders pledge a great reset after the pandemic. In this article, to pull up a, a section of it here, it says, but through a digital platform, the forum's organizers nevertheless set out an agenda that's arguably more ambitious than before. Klaus Schwab of the WEF, or World Economic Forum, founder and executive chairman, invoked the need to help provide a great reset around the world in the wake of the pandemic. The COVID-19 crisis has shown us that our old systems are not fit anymore for the 21st century, he said in a podcast ahead of events this week. So this is a little interesting. It's a little unnerving. Where is this going to go? And again, is this New World Order multiple choice? Is it just based on whatever evidence we can find and scrounge up, whatever articles we can put together? And do we, in fact, need a great reset? Anybody ever have their phone acting up? An app not working? Your computer freezes? Typically, the first thing they'll tell you to do Reset. You need to reset. You need to start over. Is that what we need? And so what is this new world order? Is it any of these things? None of these things? All of these things? Well, I think we have seen some significant shifts, to be sure, just in my lifetime. Just in the past 30 years even, the, the time that I can even remember things happening, there's been a significant shift in the world order of things. And you might say, now wait a second, how? But I want to look at some of those things that put us in a better place now for the fulfilling of Bible prophecy than even just 30 years ago. 
Because the reality is New World Order is not found in the Bible. I don't believe it's found in the writings of Spirit Prophecy. However, the idea of powers and kingdoms and who's in charge and who's in control, we see that throughout Scripture, don't we? There in the book of Daniel, we have uh, all of these various beasts depicted first with the image, and then it fleshes out further with repetition and enlargement. So we know about Babylon, we know about Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then we know about the, the papacy that comes out of Rome, and then we know about the United States in Bible prophecy. We're going to talk more about both of those. And then finally, and I've chosen this picture not because I believe Biden will be the president necessarily. I think any president could be. It's just he's our president now. But it's this idea of the union of the United States with the papacy coming together to form a different way of doing things. And so we have these seven major world orders, if you will, throughout Scripture. But what I want to try to do this morning is a couple of things. I want to zoom back. I don't want to go into the weeds of conspiracy theories or what have you, and there may be some validity to some of those. I don't know. But I want to try and go up a little higher to 50,000 feet and look down at a broader view of some of the things that we've seen happen just in the last 30 years and see how those things set up in a greater way the things that we see that are going to still be fulfilled in Bible prophecy. Because truly, I don't believe the New World Order is multiple choice. I believe the Bible tells us very plainly and clearly what we can expect. And so as Seventh-day Adventists, we don't look at the news like everybody else looks at the news. We don't follow this rabbit trail or that rabbit trail, but we prayerfully consider, Lord, how are these things impacting where your word tells us we are going in Bible prophecy? Does that make sense? All right. So let's see what we can do here. First of all, where did this term come from? First, Woodrow Wilson was the first one to use it, I believe. And it was after World War I. He says this, I can predict with absolute certainty that within another generation there will be another world war if the nations of the world do not concert the method by which to prevent it. Meaning the world needs to come together. Now, do we have another world war? We did. He was right. But in an effort to prevent that, he came up with 14 considerations for peace proposed by the then President of the United States. And in January 1918, he announced these four points. Eventually, out of that was created this League of Nations, which really predates the United Nations, which was a world body to try and settle future conflicts among nations. And so in this, he talks about we need a new world order, a new way of doing business on a global scale. And so I guess that's really the first time that this new world order of any precedence was used. Let's fast forward now to the late 1980s. Oh boy, what an era. My kids had 80s day the other day. Have mercy. So let's imagine we're at camp meeting. It's the late 1980s. You're up at Lake Junaluska. It looks exactly the same, probably in the 1980s. And maybe you've come to hear one of our famous evangelists, maybe Mark Finley or Kenneth Cox or Joe Cruz, and they're preaching our message, but when they talk about the United States and how it would align with the papacy to form a Sunday law, the speakers at that time, late 80s, would have to admit, look, we have this iron curtain, right? 
The Soviet Union doesn't allow God into its country. It's atheistic. Eastern Europe is also the same. And so it was very apparent that some significant events would have to take place on the world stage to allow for this Sunday law, which I'll show you later will be an international Sunday law. I believe that comes from Scripture and Spirit of Prophecy. How is this going to happen in the midst of communism, with this iron curtain, with closed countries? And so that was recognized as a real challenge. Fast forward to February 24, 1992. Front page of Time magazine, written by Carl Bernstein. The only one who broke the Watergate story in the 1970s. So this is a major article in a well-respected news magazine. This is not conspiracy theory stuff. But in this article, Bernstein describes a secret meeting between President Reagan and Pope John Paul II on June 7, 1982 at the Vatican that lasted for nearly an hour. Bernstein describes it as one of the greatest secret alliances or one of the greatest secret alliances of all time in that article. In this meeting, Reagan pledged the economic and military power of the United States, and the Pope pledged his political assistance from the Vatican to support the solidarity movement in Poland. So they're coming together, they're combining forces, let's work together for this solidarity movement in Poland. What was that? That was led by Lech Walesa in the early 1980s, in which one-third of the working class of Poland was marching and protesting, and all of this played a key role in ending communist rule in Poland. Lech Walesa would later be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his role. And all of this put significant political pressure, economic pressure, even military pressure on the Soviet Union. Y'all remember the Soviet Union? So then just five years later, after his meeting with the Pope, in President Reagan's second term on June 12, 1987, in one of the most iconic moments of his presidency, standing on the Brandenburg Gate of the Berlin Wall, some of you perhaps have been there, he said, Mr. Gorbachev, you can finish it, tear down this wall. It's kind of fascinating. He was told by his advisors to leave that line out of his speech. But he came down and saying, I'm the president, the line stays in the speech. A little over two years later, the Berlin Wall falls. I was almost 11 when all of this happened. As my dad watched the news on our little TV with Tom Brokaw, I remember asking him, Dad, why is this a big deal? Because even at 11, I could tell that this was a significant thing in world history. Dad, I want to understand it more. What's going on here? The East and the West had been divided for so long. And this really represented the collapse of communism. Not everything had happened at this point, but this was a major event that took place. I mean, every station was reporting. Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather were all talking about this. And then just two years later, in 1991, Gorbachev resigned. And the Soviet hammer and sickle flag lowered for the last time over the Kremlin, therefore being replaced by the Russian tricolor flag. And so, the major world events that seemed necessary for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy started falling in line. And as we saw the rise of this new world order, 
closed countries were no longer closed. As the Iron Curtain was taken down, the grip of atheism in these parts of the world was losing its grasp. So in 89, the Berlin Wall comes down. In 91, the Soviet Union has collapsed. And this leads the way for a new world order, if you will. My wife's family moved to Russia, I believe, in uh, 1993, just after this. A year prior, in 92, Mark Finley would hold evangelistic series in where but the Kremlin itself. Pretty inspiring to me to hear that. Formerly home of Lenin and Stalin, where for over 70 years the forces of atheistic communism were convened right there in the, in the Kremlin, and Pastor Finley holds a series in 1992. Elizabeth and her family goes over in 1993. That same year, there's 250 evangelistic series in Russia by the Adventist Church. Praise the Lord. And if you want a good read, check out this book. We read it with the kids, I don't know, a year or so ago. Maybe we should read it again, The Cross and the Kremlin. Remarkable stories from Mark Finley during that, that time, and I'm so thankful he put them down for us there. So, as you're seeing the fall of communism, there is also another shift on the world stage. August 2, 1990, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Do you remember that in the headlines? And that very day, President George H.W. Bush came on live from the Oval Office to tell us all about it. And then just a few days later, or maybe a little over a month later, President H.W. Bush addressed a joint session of Congress that was shown and broadcast on television, and he talks about a big idea, to use his words. And then he further goes on to say, new world order. In fact, he says it this way in his speech. We stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move forward toward a historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order can emerge, he says. A new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. So again, here we see the word surface, a new world order. Now I thought the United States was already at the top. Well, it was but not in the same way as it is now. In January of 1991, with 35 nations in the coalition, it was the United States that led the response across Iraq. So what was this new world order about? How did this propel America forward to be the end-time player we see in Revelation 13? Well, we have seen that by this time the Soviet Union has collapsed, the Berlin Wall has come down. The door is open for the United States to really become the major superpower. What President H.W. Bush was looking for in his new world order was nuclear disarmament of the Soviet Union, which is a good thing. I'm glad it's not like it was during the Bay of Pigs when the Soviets were poised to shoot nuclear missiles into the United States from Cuba, right in our backyard. So I'm glad we don't have that threat today. So nuclear disarmament is not a bad thing. German reunification, again, is not a bad thing. But what you clearly have is a new dynamic on the world stage. And from this new world order, the United States takes the lead as the leading global super 
power. Yes, Russia is still a player. China is still a player. But as Seventh-day Adventists, we might find Russia and China and, and Daniel 11, and there's different understandings of that, but we still, as Seventh-day Adventists, we view these other powers as minor players, knowing that they are not the last great superpower spoken of in Revelation 13. It's the United States that will play a key prophetic role. That's why we pay attention to what the President of the United States is saying and what laws Congress is passing, and especially to what the United States and the papacy are doing together. Because that relationship that was formed between Reagan and the papacy, and, and others had, had had relationships before, but it really brought that relationship so much closer, and it's really maintained more or less ever since. So fast forward again to 2001, the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center takes place. And this leads to George W. Bush, the son, speaking again to the nation and on a joint session of Congress, waging a global war on terror. Through this tragedy, it further enabled the United States to take the lead as the global power of the world. And much has happened since then. The world has changed since that time. Can you believe this year will mark 20 years ago? I still remember where I was, heading to class, trying to leave Talge Hall. And there was all of this commotion, and I went into Dean Major's office, and I watched on his TV, crowded in to try and see it. So there are some major developments that seem to be critical, and you may have others that you feel like are critical and you'd like to add to the list or what have you. That's fine. I don't have objections to that. But the point... It's simple that the United States is in a place today that it was not in even just 30 years ago to fulfill its role in Bible prophecy. Does that make sense? And so here we are in 2021 in a nation that's divided between Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, various groups calling other groups extremists, and the list goes on. And sadly, I feel some of our people are too wrapped up in all of this. Because I have people on both sides of the aisle that see things so singularly that they're not seeing things biblically. Because their side, as a Democrat, their side can't do any wrong, and the Republicans are just evil and wicked and, you know, the whole thing. And they can't see the forest for the trees. And on the other side, Republicans think their side is, is you know, the only saving grace and the Democrats are just, you know, the mark of the beast. And, and they're missing the bigger picture. And we know that between 1844 and the second coming, we're not, we are looking for events, not time prophecies. But the question is, what does the Bible say about the new world order? What can we expect? Is it going to be China? Is it going to be Russia? Is it going to be a global reset? Let's look and see what Scripture can tell us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can read. I'm going to have, I think, most of the verses on the screen today. But if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, make some notations, circle some words, that would be fine too. But we're in Revelation chapter 13. A chapter I think most of us know pretty well, but we're going to look at it here again. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up 
out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now we know this beast is the Roman Catholic Church state power, right? And I'm going to kind of make that assumption that you're with us on that. Verse 2, now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And so sometimes we call this the composite beast of the four beasts that we find in Daniel chapter 7. These are the beasts that we have in Daniel chapter 7. But this beast in Revelation 13 has components of each of these, right? And it says in verse 2, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So in Revelation, when it says he has the mouth of the lion, means the beast of Revelation 13 speaks like Babylon. Are you with me? Out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. And it says then, skipping down to verse 5 in Revelation 13, and he was given a mouth, there it is again, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, which we know is synonymous with three and a half years or 1,260 days or years and so on. And so we can make all of those connections. So keeping all of that in mind and going back to Daniel 7, there you have the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the dreadful beast with teeth of iron. And then you have this little horn power that comes up. And four times in Daniel 7, this little horn has a mouth speaking Great things, just like the mouth that is speaking things in Revelation 13. And so the question I want to ask is, what is the blasphemy that is spoken? Well, we get a hint in Daniel 7 when the little horn is mentioned. I said four times, speaking pompous words very quickly. One of those is in verse 8, mouth speaking pompous words. That's the first one. Verse 11 in Daniel 7 says pompous words which the horn was speaking. That's the second time it's mentioned. In verse 20, that horn which had a mouth which spoke pompous words. There it is for the third time. And then for the fourth time, he shall speak pompous words. Verse 25, against the Most High. So what is this blasphemy that is spoken these four times in Daniel 7? And what hints does that give us to Revelation 13? Well, it tells us right here, they shall speak pompous words against the Most High, that's a clue, right? And if we continue on with the verse, and shall intend to change times and laws. That's the blasphemy that's being spoken out of the mouth. So again, the question was the blasphemy that's spoken. When the little horn is mentioned, speaking four times these pompous words, it is speaking in a way that you think you can change the law of God. You think you can change the law of God. These are the words spoken over and over and again. So the other question we need to ask is how do nations speak? Is it Twitter? Is it CNN or NBC? Or, well, sort of, but ultimately a nation speaks through laws or legislation. And so when it says he shall speak pompous words... We could really put in there in its place, and he shall speak or shall make laws, right, against the Most High. And we could say he shall make laws against the saints of the Most High. And he shall intend, or we could say make laws to change times and law. 
or the very law of God. And you've heard this question asked before too, which of God's Ten Commandments has to do with time? Last I checked, there was only one, the one we refer to as the Fourth Commandment. It's the only one that refers to time. Six days thou shalt labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And so the papacy spoke great things by thinking or made great laws to try and change Sabbath to Sunday. And friends, this isn't new stuff. Reformers through the ages have seen that the little horn in Daniel 7 and the composite beast from the sea in Revelation 13 are both speaking about the same power, the papacy, speaking with his mouth four times in Daniel 7, another time in Revelation 13, and in both places these beasts are speaking great things and blasphemies, or we could say making laws that attempt to change God's Sabbath to Sunday. And so in the Bible, God foretells various world orders from Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, down to this little horn power. And in Revelation 13, verse 3, we saw that one of its heads was mortally wounded. That was a change. At that point, that mortal wound was a change in the world order. And when did that take place? 1798. And so we'll just move this over here to the side. What's going to be the new world order? What's going to emerge to take its place? And we see the United States rising in prominence at that time. And so we can put that there in its place. Revelation 13, 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, a very unpopulated place. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And so just from that verse, we can come up with several things. He's arising around 1798. Did our country come about around that time? Sure did. We have here the 1260-year prophecy that ends in 1798. Here we have Berthier taking the Pope captive and so on. Secondly, arising in a relatively unpopulated area. Does that fit? Yes. No crowns on its horns. Does that fit? Yes. Horns in Bible prophecy symbolize power. But it has no crowns on its horns, so this beast is not a monarchy. It has no king. These horns represent civil and religious liberty. In the old world, there were established religions that were connected to the government. This just seems so foreign to us now. But citizens were taxed to support those churches. There were religious tests for political office. Religious descendants were often oppressed, marginalized, or even persecuted. And that seems foreign to us, but that's what was. But this power, this lamb-like beast, would have no crowns on its horns. These two horns. It would be a young nation. Fits that as well. It would rise to a position of worldwide power and influence, or we could say would be the new world order, and it fits that as well. So what's the only nation that fits this description? the United States of America. This nation is now the greatest nation on earth. It has the greatest geopolitical power on earth. There is no question about it. And the thing that drove its power, when you look at the Constitution, when you look at the Declaration of Independence, is the separation of church and state, or civil and religious liberty. Another way you could describe it is republicanism. That's a representative government without a king 
and Protestantism, or representative church without a pope. Now, this is not the Republican Party. Republicanism means that 1% minority are protected in the Constitution from the 99% majority from voting away their civil and religious liberty. Republicanism means that group of law-abiding citizens cannot have their constitutional rights violated by the majority. So the majority cannot vote a law saying everyone has to worship on Sunday. If a minority such as Seventh-day Adventists say, hey, that violates our religious liberty, we are law-abiding citizens, and so the Supreme Court, according to our Constitution, should then rule against such a law saying you are violating the religious liberty of this group of law-abiding citizens to worship on Saturday instead of Sunday. This is unconstitutional. You hear that argument in the news a lot today, too. This is unconstitutional. That's unconstitutional. What's the big deal? If we get rid of the Constitution, have mercy. That has been bedrock for this nation. That is what has allowed us to become a great nation. And so it's on those two horns, on those two founding principles, that's made America great. And as a lamb-like nation, it's referring to those Christian principles that drive America. And those Christian principles mean that atheists have civil liberties and any other religious beliefs have civil liberties as well. And you can worship according to the dictates of your conscience or not worship as long as you are law-abiding citizens. You can't go around shooting people or holding them hostage or burning their house down or robbing or stealing. But beyond that, you have the right to free speech, to express your views as long as you're not breaking the laws of the land. That's America. That's what this country is about. But do we see that slipping? Do we see, and the devil is so crafty, we see not the government, but we see private enterprise taking away one of our fundamental principles, the freedom of free speech. It's almost a test run, I think. See how it goes over. I mentioned in my newsletter a week ago how Pastor Hyman, he has done two different series, one on Daniel, the other on Revelation, where he goes chapter and verse of all of them. And here he is just getting started on one of them. I just decided to put up Daniel 13 explained up here. And it used to have down here a bunch of comments where people could leave comments. They could ask questions. You know, you have a question, you ask Google, and there's a bunch of other people that have already asked the same question, and they've gotten answers, and you figure out, hey, that was my same question. Same idea. Somebody called our church office, and they said, I think they're originally from China. I think they're living in Washington State now. But anyway, they said, can we get a hold of Pastor Hein? We have a question. We cannot leave anything for him at YouTube, at at the website, any comments. They've been taken down. And it says in its place, restricted mode has hidden comments for this video. Why? Well, because Pastor Hyman's an extremist, of course. We are seeing our liberties being eroded by private enterprise. And James thinks it's funny. I heard him laugh over there. So back to Revelation 13, 11, and he had two horns like a lamb. And I wish it would end there, but it doesn't. And it says, and spoke like a dragon. Friends, the dragon is none other than Satan himself. 
The old serpent called the devil, Revelation 12, verse 9. So despite the beginnings of religious liberty and freedom of worship, this lamb-like beast, the Bible says, will end up speaking like the dragon. Who else spoke like the dragon? We just have to go back a few verses to that beast that came before up out of the sea. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. The first piece of Revelation 13, this Roman Catholic church-state power, it spoke great things and blasphemies by trying to change God's law. It too spoke like a dragon, and the second beast coming up out of the earth will be no different. It says, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast. So when the second beast, which is the United States of America, speaks like a dragon, it's going to speak the same way the first beast spoke pretty mind-boggling, is it not? And that just as they made laws when they spoke, our nation too will make laws as we speak. And we see it further fleshed out as we continue on in Revelation 13, verse 14, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image or likeness to the beast. Which beast? Well, it tells us more, which had the wound by a sword, that deadly wound in 1798, but it says, and yet lived. So let's make an image to the papacy. And continuing in verse 15, and he had power to give life unto the image, this likeness of, this Sunday sacredness, if you will, to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak. What did we learn speech is? Make laws and cause that as many as would not worship. And what's the issue? Worship the image or likeness of the beast, of the papacy, should be killed. Going back to verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. This is talking about the papacy now, the sea beast. That mortal wound, that was the change in the world order in 1798. And it goes on, and his deadly wound was healed. This is fast forwarding now. The United States and the papacy coming together, this healing. And all the world marveled, maybe your translation said wondered, and followed the beast. So friends, the deadly wound will be fully healed. I mean, it's really healed, but it won't be fully healed until the papacy has power over the state again. This is the Sunday law. That's when all the world will marvel or wonder after the beast, the papacy. And it says in verse 4, So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And so when worship is involved, when all are forced to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed, when the world marvels and follows the beast, when the United States should both speak and cause all who do not worship the image to be killed, that is the Sunday law. That's the next change in the new world order that we can expect. And so is the new world order multiple choice? Friends, it is not. This is what we are to look for. Are there things, are there articles, are there ways that we see this coming together happening? Absolutely there are. 
But the ultimate new world order is right here on the screen when the United States and the papacy unite and create a national and eventually it will be an international Sunday law. That is the true new world order. And so we can put it up here on the screen if it helps you understand a little bit better. According to Bible prophecy, the national Sunday law is this new world order. This is the change in the world powers, if you will. So if you haven't noticed, in this series we keep coming back to this national Sunday law because it's a big deal. It's a crucial event because it's going to violate both the religious and civil liberties of law-abiding citizens in America and eventually the whole world. And people will say, my conscience and my understanding of Scripture will not allow me to worship on the first day of the week because the fourth commandment clearly states that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord my God. And it's not just here in Revelation 13, but we find this in Revelation 17. And here's where we really need prayer because Revelation chapter 17 is a composite, if you will, of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 13. It puts them all together. Have mercy. And so if you want an intermission, now might be a good time. But here in Revelation 17, it talks about Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And when John wrote this, the empire of Babylon had been destroyed for more than 500 years. So this is not literal Babylon, but rather this is talking about spiritual Babylon, an apostate religious system that would depart from the pure teachings of God's word, described as making the inhabitants of the earth drunk with the wine of her false doctrines. You've read those verses before. It's described in verse 3 as having seven heads and ten horns. Exact wording as a description of the beast from the sea in Revelation 13.3. It also is described as being adorned in purple and scarlet, just like the Catholic priests. It speaks of persecuting the saints. And we know the Catholic Church did this for 1,260 years. And so as we study this out, the main thrust of the chapter is clear. We have an apostate religious power working in league with Satan to unite with the state to achieve absolute control over the world. And so let's look at some verses here. Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life. Friends, in Revelation 13, when the world marvels is when the Sunday law is passed and the papacy is uplifted. They're marveling at the beast. And then it goes on from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Same idea. Was, is not, and will ascend. Was, is not, yet is. Past, present, future. And when it does ascend in the future, the world will marvel, it says. This seems to be a direct link, I believe, to Revelation 13, 3 that we just read about one of the heads being mortally wounded, but his wound was healed, and the world marveled and followed the beast. So we see that Scarlet beast in Revelation 17 is the same as the first beast of Revelation 13. 
And here in Revelation 17, the vision of the scarlet beast that God gave to John is from the perspective of emerging from the wilderness at the end of the Dark Ages in 1798. And so here, when the text says the beast was and is not and yet is, the was, I believe, is the papacy. But in 1798, it receives a deadly wound. So for a time, it is not. That's where we are. But in the future, when there is a Sunday law and all the world marvels after the beast, that means it shall ascend or that yet is, if you will. So once again, the papacy will rise to the zenith of power and unite with the state, pass around the wine cup of false doctrines and become a major world force. You see that? Then in verses 9 and 10, and we like to confuse this big time, but Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Now the woman is Babylon, is false religion, and she has sat on seven heads or seven mountains and seven kings, which I believe are all the same thing, seven kingdoms that have supported the false religious Babylon throughout history. And you say, well, how can you say that? I thought it was the seven last popes and then the charts come out and the whole thing. Well, friends, if you look at Bible prophecy, heads, kings, and kingdoms, and mountains are all used interchangeably in Bible prophecy. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, the stone that struck the image and became a great mountain represents God's kingdom. Does that make sense? So I think we're talking about all the same. It says five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Does that sound familiar? Past, present, future? So what is this talking about? Five have fallen. These are the five kingdoms that have supported the false religion of Babylon. So we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Papal Rome. Those are the five that have fallen. One is, this is the United States after the deadly wound in 1798. And the other has not yet come. This is the United States coming together with the papacy to enforce a Sunday law. And there's the seven heads, the seven kings, and so on. And then verse 11, the beast that was and is not yet is himself also the eighth. Oh boy. And is of the seven and is going to perdition. This also gets people all confused, but this again, I believe, is referring to the papacy. The beast that was, in the dark ages, is not, after 1798, himself is also the eighth. It just told us it's also the eighth. And is of the seven. Well, he is of the seven because he is the fifth. And while the papacy is part of the seventh head, when the United States and the papacy unite, he's also the eighth when all the world marvels after the beast. That's when he's the eighth. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings and have received no kingdom as yet. Going on in verse 12. So what are these ten horns? Well, ten is a universal number. And it represents the kings of the earth, I believe, coming together for a one world alliance. 
when the kings of the earth universally unite with the papacy and the false prophet of Protestant America, the image of the beast is formed, which is the Sunday law, and the kings of the earth commit fornication with the beast. And so again, these are not 10 specific nations, but 10 is a universal number in prophecy. So that this is one world coalition that is formed in the future when the Sunday law is passed. And you say, do you have any further evidence about that? That this is one world order? Well, look at how it says, receive no kingdoms. No, it says no kingdom. Singular. And so where does that fit in? Right here on the bottom of our chart. This is the seventh head. So when the United States ceases to be truly Protestant and speaks as a, a dragon, it becomes part of the seventh head and is part of the kings of the earth who commit fornication with Babylon and Sunday legislation is passed. And then it goes on in verse 12, but they received authority for one hour as kings with the beast. The word for one hour in Greek can also be translated season. So I don't believe we're talking about prophetic time and how many weeks is this and so on. But I do believe it's representing a very short period of time. It's not going to be long. These are for one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast, it says in verse 13. And in verse 14, these will make war with the lamb. This is the one world government where the kings of the earth unite with the papacy, and this is the new world order. And here we don't see it on a national level, we see it on a universal level. And so the true new world order, international Sunday law. As the United States combines with the papacy and all the kings of the earth unite for one hour, that's when the Sunday law goes universal. So here in Revelation 17, we see that the Sunday law is not limited to just the United States, but will go around the world. And I believe we see that right here in Scripture. Let's look at some quotations. Great Controversy 588 says, Through two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They'll reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. Have we seen this? We have. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country, she writes, will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. Friends, this country will follow in the steps of Rome. Well, I have rights. It says in the Constitution. Praise the Lord for the Constitution. Use that Constitution as long as you can because that Constitution is going to expire according to God's Word. Now is the time. This is from volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 451. When Protestantism shall stretch your hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, she says, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution. Wow. As a Protestant and Republican government, 
and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. And then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. Just like those dominoes. It's going to go fast. And friends, these things are coming. And long doubters of these things are starting to wake up. Here's another quote from volume 7 of Bible Commentary, page 977. It says, When our nation and its legislative councils shall enact laws to bind the conscience of men in regard to their religious privileges, enforcing Sunday observance and bringing oppressive power to bear against those who keep the seventh-day Sabbath, the law of God will to all intents and purposes be made void in our land, and national apostasy will be followed by national ruin. So we're going to see the judgments of God being poured out on this nation. National apostasy will be followed by national ruin. Friends, this new world order is coming, and the international Sunday law, I believe, will be the result. Some still doubt that it's going to be international, or global, I should say. Volume 6 of Testimonies, page 18. As America, the land of religious liberty, shall unite with the papacy in forcing the conscience and compelling men to honor the false Sabbath, the people of every country on the globe will be led to follow her example. Here's another one, volume 7 of the Testimonies, 141. The substitution of the laws of men for the law of God, the exaltation by merely human authority of Sunday in place of the Bible Sabbath is the last act in the drama. You know they have to happen fast after that, those final events, because it says it's the last act in the drama. When this substitution becomes universal, God will reveal himself. So all the countries on the globe will compel men to honor the false Sabbath. And so in the true new world order, you have Protestantism or the United States of America, you have Catholicism or the papacy, you have spiritualism, and they're all uniting with the kings of all the earth for universal Sunday law. And we know the United States will take the lead and be foremost in reaching out and clasping the hands of the papacy and spiritualism. And it will be universal. And it will go throughout the entire world where the kings of the earth will unite for one hour, it says in Revelation 17. But there's some incredibly good news in Revelation 17 that we didn't read. They will make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them. Praise the Lord. For He is Lord of Lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. That's the incredibly good news. And so, yes, there is a new world order that is coming, and yes, it is in development even now. And we'd have to be blind not to see it, but rather than looking for obscure things in obscure places, let's look at the big picture. I already told you one of my fears is that people get so caught up in their political viewpoints and their parties that they don't see the forest for the trees. And we have taken on top above 50,000 feet in the air view and look down and say, how do these things fit into Bible prophecy, not how they fit into my political persuasion? What's the big picture? Because the reality is the world is becoming more and more fragile. And now more than ever before, 
Even in the last just 30 years, the United States is in a perfect position to unite with the papacy and spiritualism to enforce the Sunday law. Everything's in place. The dominoes are all set up. How long will God tarry? I don't know. But I imagine it will be a surprise to all of us. So the question we need to ask, how should we respond? Well, first of all, I'm thinking we need to realize that today is the day. That the end of all things is very very close. It's at hand. That very soon the final catalyst will be put into motion and Jesus will be at the door. You consider how fragile things are and then you just insert a few major cataclysmic weather events and the whole world economy literally could crumble. Great time for a global reset. Great time to get back to God. Great time to listen to what the Pope has to say. Any number of things, but it could happen very quickly. So how should we respond? Friends, I would say we need to also respond by prayerfully considering what God is calling us to do. What is God calling you to do? What is he calling me to do in this hour in which we live? And it's no one size fits all. Some of you are saying, Lord, should I be in this job? Lord, should I look for another job? Lord, should I be in this house? Should I be in this large city? Should I be out in the country? Lord, I have all of these finances that are built up. We've sat down. We've sharpened our pencil. We know that if you tarry, that we have enough to retire right here. So now we have all of this. What do you want us to do with it? Make it a matter of prayer. He'll show you. He'll guide you. He'll lead you. Don't think for a moment that he won't. Think about your family members. Think about your neighbors. Think about those that you've been praying for for a long time, and now you're thinking, you know, after 10 years of praying, I think I'm going to pick up the phone. I think I'm going to invite them to have a Bible study. I think I'm going to, and I don't know what the Lord's going to tell you. Maybe he'll say, no, just keep praying. You'll mess it up. Yes, Lord, I'll keep praying. But maybe he'll say, give them a call. Shoot them a text. Send them a book. And you don't just do it because you feel like you should. You pray about it first. And if the Lord tells you to do it, you do it. And perhaps most importantly, am I trusting my life fully and completely to God today? Because if I'm not totally surrendered to Him now in the petty things of life, how will I be surrendered to Him tomorrow when things get really weighty? and heavy, and overwhelming. And so we practice, day in and day out, being surrendered to the Lord. I'm going to read this verse. I think of these verses that are comfort to me during these times. Sermon on the Mount, some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he began his ministry. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. You say, Lord, I'm poor in spirit. But there's the promise right there on the front end, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As soon as we recognize our need, he gives us a promise. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A true heart sorrow for sin. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To see people through God's eyes, if you will. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness? We have more resources at our disposal right now than ever before. Blessed are the merciful, for those shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward, where? In heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we know also they persecuted the man who said these very words. H.M.S. Richards was a real giant within Adventism. He found the voice of prophecy radio ministry when radio was relatively a new thing. He was a pioneer in religious radio broadcasting. Broadcast in 36 languages on more than 1,100 stations and Bible courses in 80 languages offered by 144 correspondent schools. But maybe you didn't realize he faced some heavy resistance. Many felt and told him in a very straightforward way that he was using the devil's tool to spread the gospel. And there's a document that you can find online. It's often credited to him, but the reality is he didn't write it, but he kept it in, I believe, the leaflet of his Bible or someplace very close because it encouraged him and he liked to read it. And I'd like to read it to you just now. It says, The Lord has given to every man his work. It is his business to do it and the devil's business to hinder him if he can. So surely as God has given you a work to do, Satan will try to hinder you. He may present other things more promising. He may allure you by worldly prospects. He may assault you with slander, torment you with false accusations, set you to work defending your character, employ pious persons to lie about you, editors to assail you, and ex- excellent men to slander you. It says you may have Pilate and Herod, Annas and Caiaphas all combined against you, and Judas standing by ready to sell you for 30 pieces of silver. And you may wonder why all those things come upon you. Can you not see that the whole thing is brought about through the craft of the devil to draw you from your work and hinder your obedience to God? And it says, keep about your work, exclamation point. Keep about your work that God has given you. Do not flinch because the lion roars. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not fool away your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Keep about your work. Let liars lie. Let corporations resolve. Let the devil do his worst. But see to it that nothing hinders you from fulfilling the work that God has given you to do. Keep about your work. He has not commanded you to get rich. He has never bidden you to defend your character. He has not set you at work to contradict falsehoods about yourself, which Satan and his servants may start to peddle. If you do these things, you will do nothing else. You will be at work for yourself, not the Lord. Let your aim be as steady as a star. Keep about your work. 
You may be assaulted, wronged, insulted, slandered, wounded, and rejected. You may be abused by foes, forsaken by friends, and despised and rejected of men, and, but see to it with steadfast determination, with unfaltering zeal, that you pursue the great purpose of your life and object of your being until at last you can say, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And that's what he kept in this Bible. Friends, at this time in earth's history, may we prayerfully consider the work God has given us to do. Father, we have seen again today that things are mounting for a new world order. The Bible is plain, that forces will come together, that a national Sunday law will become an international Sunday law, and things will happen rapidly at that time. Our nation will unravel before our eyes and you will come. In light of these things, I pray that your Holy Spirit will show us and guide us that we may be surrendered to you and your purpose for our lives and keep about the work that you've given us to do. In faithfulness to your call, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.